This podcast is by G. Wayne Miller for the Providence Journal. Before the pandemic, before March of 2020, I had been spending quite a bit of time speaking with behavioral health clinicians, um, training behavioral health clinicians with regard to the use of technology to deliver services to people remotely. And uh, the pandemic has added an exponent to all of this work in ways that none of us ever imagined. And I'm including psychiatrists and clinical psychologists, clinical social workers, licensed mental health counselors, marriage and family therapists, um, generally known as behavioral health professionals. And while I've been um, thinking about and writing about and consulting on matters related to the use of technology to deliver services remotely, the advent of the pandemic has accelerated the um, uh, issues that are before me and my colleagues, the request for consultation. I've had the opportunity and I would say privilege to provide training, particularly since March 2020, uh, to colleagues around the United States in the context of uh, continuing education seminars, which had to ramp up very quickly as clinicians were struggling to figure out how to adapt to this new reality. And also, I've had the opportunity during the past few months uh, to provide in training in real time to colleagues in Spain and in Romania and in Italy, Poland, uh, Greece, Djibouti, Bahrain, um, Japan, Singapore, Diego Garcia, and uh, Jakarta, Indonesia. So it's just amazing to me that the technology, with all the challenges it poses, also provides rich opportunities to deliver services to people who are struggling in life, particularly during the pandemic, but also for me to provide training to people around the world. So obviously the challenges and and the demands on behavioral health experts, professionals, and specialists are significant. What are they seeing from their clients? I mean, I've written about the mental health implications of, of, of the pandemic several times actually in the Providence Journal. And so I know it's, it's intensified and, and, but in your words, what are they, what are they telling you they're hearing from people all over the world in addition to the U S right. And recognizing there are some cultural differences. There, there are some prominent themes and, you know, this is no great surprise, unfortunately, that the pandemic has for many people exacerbated clinical depression, exacerbated anxiety. For some, it's an increase in symptoms. For some, it's an onset of new symptoms that they've never experienced before. So depression, anxiety, uh, substance use, some people are coping by self-medicating, which of course leads to its own problems. And also relationship violence. Sadly, um, we have lots of situations where people are confined to quarters. Sometimes these are, you know, small units and high-rise apartments in big cities with young children, and that exacerbates tension and conflict. So my colleagues are hearing about an increase in reports of relationship violence, domestic violence, interpersonal violence. Um, So I would say those are the major themes that I'm encountering. What are your thoughts in terms of going forward? There, there's no clear end in sight to this. And again, I've written about the impact of trauma. It doesn't necessarily exhibit itself immediately. It can be months, years down the line. What are you hearing 
in terms of concerns that, that professionals have that post-pandemic, whenever we get there, we're going to still be having a lot of issues to deal with. Sure. So on the mental health side, there are lots of ripples in this pond. And the, the ripples, I'm afraid, are turning into waves um, in many instances. And I think these uh, waves are going to last a long time. Um, you know, in some instances, people are experiencing stress and anxiety and relationship conflict, and they can manage it in the short term. But I think just like we're anticipating long-term economic consequences of the pandemic, and every uh, economic expert out there um, is forecasting um, uh, long-term um, uh, consequences and sequelae, I think we can expect the same with regard to the mental health consequences of the pandemic. And, you know, people vary enormously. For some, these long-term symptoms will be relatively manageable. And for others, um, they are going to be filled with crises. And sadly, in some extraordinary cases, uh, suicide. Uh, we know that this is happening. In some instances, um, um, you know, physical assault and even homicide. And these may be relatively rare instances statistically, but I'm afraid that we're going to be hearing lots of stories over the long term with regard to these kinds of consequences, both the kind of internal struggle that many people are experiencing, but also externally in terms of their relationships with others. Behavioral health specialists can make a difference now. That's essentially why you're doing what you're doing and what they are doing what they're doing. The intervention can help. Talk about how, how that can help. So we know based on not just anecdotal experience, but also mountains of research evidence that skilled empathic behavioral health interventions, mental health interventions can make an enormous difference in people's lives. Now, you know, there are no miracle cures in complex cases, but we know both in the academic sense and in the personal sense that high quality um, services, high quality relationships, what we call therapeutic alliance between a client or patient and a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker or a counselor can make an enormous difference in people's lives. It can help them get through the difficult times. It can help them develop coping skills and coping strategies. It can save lives, and that's not hyperbole. Skilled intervention can save lives. You have been doing a lot of work, and you were actually before the pandemic with the military. Talk about what you were doing before the pandemic and what you're doing now, and then sort of give an idea of the issues that may be unique or, or more pertinent to members of the military during the pandemic than the general population. Sure. Well, you know, in, in general, um, there's been a dramatic increase in behavioral health professionals' use of technology to provide services to people remotely. And during the last eight or nine years, I have been uh, asked by the U.S. Department of Defense and various branches within it, um, the Army, the Navy, Marine Corps, uh, to provide training to behavioral health professionals who are stationed on bases around the world. And their mission is to provide behavioral health services to soldiers, to sailors, to airmen and airwomen, to Marines, who are stationed in Europe and in the Middle East, um, 
and in various other uh, parts of uh, the world, Asia especially, um, these are um, behavioral health professionals who are dealing with uh, military clients and sometimes um, their family members if they're on what are called accompany tours when their family who are with them that are truly unique to the military. People who are struggling with anxiety, um, people who are struggling with depression um, and that's uh, exacerbated by being on the other side of the world, uh, people who are being deployed at a moment's notice and sometimes finding themselves in combat situations. Uh, the military, several of the branches have made some remarkable innovations in recent years when uh, sailors are out in a ship or when soldiers are deployed to a combat zone. Um, uh, several of the branches now have what are called embedded behavioral health professionals. They literally go with the unit when it's deployed. They literally go on the ship when it's in the South China Sea so that they, um, they can be close to uh, their clients and they don't have to serve them remotely or the, the soldiers don't have to be airlifted back for services uh, or sailors off of a ship, an aircraft carrier that's in the middle of the South China Sea. And so the, the military has made remarkable strides with regard to enhancing access to behavioral health services. We know that being in the military is high risk um, for all kinds of behavioral health challenges. Um, uh, isolation, anxiety, because there's, you know, people are surrounded by combat conditions. And uh, the military, as I said, has made great strides in enhancing the delivery of services to clients and technology has made an enormous difference. I've been involved in a number of cases as a consultant where a clinician was not able to be with the sailor or the soldier. They were not embedded in their unit or on the ship. They had to provide services via video conferencing while a sailor is out at sea or, as a, or when a soldier is what we call downrange in a combat zone. And the technology, which has only been available um, relatively recently, enables therapists to provide crisis intervention, sustained counseling, when they are not able to be face-to-face, -face, which is really quite remarkable. And these are the kinds of issues I've addressed in my trainings uh, to behavioral health professionals around the world, particularly with respect to uh, some of the ethics challenges uh, because that's my uh, area of expertise. Where are these these service people located uh, that you're working with now, or, or rather the therapists or, or the behavioral health specialists with these sure. service people? So since COVID-19 uh, reared its head, um, I have had the opportunity to provide training remotely from Rhode Island I'm doing it in real time. This is not recorded. It's in real time, or to use the jargon, what we call synchronous training, um, to therapists, behavioral health professionals who are stationed on bases, military bases, U.S. military bases, in Spain and in Romania and in Italy and in Greece, Djibouti and Bahrain in the Middle East. Tonight at 8 p.m. Uh, our time, um, which is uh, 20 hundred hours, uh, I will be starting a series of trainings to therapists in the U.S. Navy who are stationed in uh, several bases in Japan, uh, Singapore, and Diego Garcia, and one participant 
will be logging in in real time. Um, he's stationed on a, uh, an aircraft carrier uh, located somewhere in the South China Sea. Uh, I will be starting at 8 p.m. or 20 hundred hours this evening. In Japan, it will be 9 a.m. tomorrow. Uh, in uh, Singapore, it will be 8 a.m. tomorrow. And for the unfortunate participants in Diego Garcia, they will be logging on um, at about 6 a.m. their time tomorrow. As with so many innovations in our world, there are potential benefits and there are potential challenges. And so on the one hand, I am um, thrilled that technology in 2020 enables behavioral health professionals to provide access to services for people who are struggling in life. And we are reaching people we would not be able to reach without this technology. But every coin has two sides. So in addition to these wonderful opportunities that technology um, provides, um, we also have to recognize that there are some downsides, potential downsides and some risks. You know, seasoned clinicians know that there's nothing like face-to-face -face contact with a client. You can read the nonverbal cues. You can um, uh, look at the body language in ways that are difficult to do when you are dealing with somebody through a screen or via text messaging who's on the other side of the world. You know, we all know that technology can fail, and I know of instances where clinicians are providing services remotely. The client is in the middle of an intense uh, revelation about trauma history, and all of a sudden the screen freezes. Um, or the Wi-Fi signal is lost. And, and, and this is, you know, this is a challenge. We have to worry, of course, in this day and age about privacy breaches. Even the most secure encryption can be foiled. Uh, it doesn't happen often, but it has happened. So, you know, like so many things in life, it's a mixed bag. And so my work has been focused on enhancing the potential benefits and minimizing the risks.